So one of the things that strikes me about this company is how it's managed to have three major revivals in over a hundred years, all under different people. Uh, but there's something unstoppable about this brand and this story. My guest today is Sarah Gay Forden. Sarah is the author of The House of Gucci, a true story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed. The Economist named it a best book of the year. House of Gucci is now a major motion picture from director Ridley Scott starring Lady Gaga and Adam Driver. I recently sat down with Sarah and we talked about how talent and creative chaos built one of the world's great luxury good empires and how bitter family conflict and incompetence nearly destroyed it. Sarah, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. I really was looking forward to this, especially the fact that your book, House of Gucci, A True Story of Murder, Madness, Glamour, and Greed, is doing amazingly well at the box office. In spite of Spider-Man doing a billion dollars, this movie, people are still going to see it. It's just unbelievable. And there's no superheroes. It's incredible. I think it goes to show just the power of, of a strong narrative, what it, what it can do. Yeah, people, we love stories. We love stories. So before we get into the into the book, into the into the nitty gritty of the book, I first want to understand, because I don't really know much about the House of Gucci, not from this perspective, from the beginning. How how, how did this fashion house start? And the second thing I want to ask you on that line is, out of all the things that you could write about. Why did you pick this story? So let's do the second question later. I really want to know House of Gucci. Tell me about this Gucci family, how they're known throughout the world uh, for several generations, how they started, what makes them so great, and anything that you could add to that. I mean, this is a story really where facts are truly stranger than fiction. I mean, you couldn't make this tale up. And if you did, people wouldn't find it believable. There are so many twists and turns in, in this saga. And it all starts with very humble beginnings uh, just over a century ago in Florence in 1921. Uh, Guccio Gucci, the founder, uh, son of a, of a family that had a straw hat making factory, so they weren't... Um, you know, you know, goldsmiths or gold uh, jewelry designers. It was um, very Tuscan um, sort of, um, you know, origin. And he went off to London to get a job because things were so tough at that time. And it was in the Savoy Hotel where he got a job as we don't know exactly what, but it was maybe a, um, a bellhop or a dishwasher. It was like a low level job. Um, but he could see the sort of European traveling elite uh, moving through the hotel, and th they had something that he recognized from his hometown of Florence. They had beautiful luggage that they used to carry all their finery in. And so that's where he got the idea to go back home and start his own leather goods uh, making company. And he opened the first store in Florence on Via della Vigna in 1921. And that was the start of this humongous fashion. Now started as a leather company from a guy who was a bellhop or something in the Savoy Hotel. <laughs> That's really it, right? 
So the thing that's, that, that you know starts to get intriguing about this story is one the craftsmanship and and I you know I was covering the Italian luxury goods industry for Women's Wear Daily at the time I was the bureau chief and I was the business writer so I was writing about fashion not from the the fashion perspective but from the business perspective and I didn't ever think I was going to be writing about fashion I I moved to Milan because I was interested in the you know business and financial. Um, you know, story coming out of out of Italy at the time. Uh, the EU had recently formed. There are a lot of cross-border deals going on. There were big sort of old money companies like Pirelli and Agnelli and, and De Benedetti. And so I was writing about that. And it was right at that time that the Italian fashion brands started to expand and they were literally exploding from mom and pop kind of labels, you know, sort of family businesses into mega brands. Mm. And they were all doing it in a different way. And it was sometimes it was painful. And in the case of the Gucci story, you know, it was more, they were pioneers at every step of the way. I mean, including with Maurizio, who was the last uh, member of the Gucci family to run the company. He was the first to bring in, you know, big finance and bring in an investment bank as a partner. So all of this was kind of unusual um, for, for how those companies were moving. And and yet, um, you know, their story became emblematic in a way of what many companies were going through, but at the same time, um, extreme in every way. So you can see from the twists and turns. So when did Gucci as a company or as a brand, when did that start to really hit? You're saying he started the business in the 20s, right? 22, 21 or thereabouts, goes back to Italy, opens up the shop. Is it a hit? Did they start doing well from day one? Because there's a lot of great craftsmanship in Italy. Yeah, it was tough in the beginning. It was not a hit overnight. And in fact, in the beginning of the book, you know, you'll read Guccio had financial struggles. He had to borrow money. Uh, he'd had to keep his sons in line. Um, some were interested in the business, some weren't. Um, and it was really the second generation under Aldo, his uh, one of his sons, uh, that Gucci really started to expand. And Aldo was the marketer, sort of part genius marketer before there was such thing as marketing. And he was also the expander. So he's the one who brought Gucci to New York. Uh, it was one of the first Italian brands to open a store in New York um, in those years. This was in the late 50s. It was Gucci and Pucci. And then he went on to Los Angeles. He was the first, um, one of the first brands, again, to open a store in Rodeo Drive before Rodeo Drive was even a thing. But he had, you know, what they say, the nose for the business. Um, and so it was really in the 50s, 60s, 70s that, you know, kind of Gucci had its first um, kind of moment in the sun. Um, and then it happened again uh, in the 90s when Tom Ford took over and turned it into a real fashion brand and hit it out of the park with his sort of very sexy hot designs. And now it's having kind of its third revival. So, so one of the things that strikes me about this company is how it's managed to have three like, major revivals in uh, over 100 years, all under different people. Uh, but there's something unstoppable about this brand and this story. Yeah, yeah, what, what, what is it about this brand that a friend of mine, uh, this was 2008, during the financial crisis, and Fifth Avenue from like 57th all the way up was, all the stores there were empty. I remember it was empty. The only store that was filled at the time was um, was the Apple store. <laughs> Every other store on, on, this, on this beautiful row, you know, retailers paradise, they were empty. Friend of mine walks into the Gucci store and he asks how much something is. And the salesperson said, 
we are not discounting, like he says, I didn't ask for a discount. <laughs> but he said just the just the goal of, th you know, that during the financial crisis, there was nobody buying luxury items. But Gucci still had this brand and this uh, this snobberish that we never discount. Like, how yeah. does a brand like that survive uh, three three real challenges, which would have destroyed any other brand? You know, it's also about dreams and and sort of uh, creating in the customer this this sense of need for something that you don't really need, but that you desire and you aspire to, and it says something about you. And actually, it's funny that is very consistent with Gucci's history because um, there were terrible newspaper articles being written in in the sixties, seventies, seventies in New York about how badly the Gucci shop. Um, you know, shop people treated their customers, but that almost became part of the intrigue too. You know, people would say, oh, let's go to Gucci and be treated badly. They abused and spent thousands of dollars on things we don't need. <laughs> it's amazing. I would say, I don't think that happens anymore. I think they've really, you know, they're, they're very accommodating. Uh, they've gotten the message. The customers comes first, right? I think a hundred years, but all right, good. They got it. Uh, so, okay. So here's a brand that just refuses to die. And I think it says more about not only the brand, but the consumer. The consumer, when a brand starts dying, they just run from it and try to find the new thing. Here, what I find so amazing from a business perspective is the consumer forgave and went back to the brand three different times. It's really about its capacity to innovate and to stay fresh and to stay relevant and to, again, spark that desire in people. Um, Maurizio Gucci used to say to, to people that, that Gucci was like like a siren, meaning like a, like a mermaid who would like call the sailors um, in. And, and in a way, there's this sort of sort of um, devastating <laughs> appeal um, that it still has today. And, and it's also really, really grown in popularity with young, the younger generation, which is very hard for these expensive luxury brands to do. Um, but with the latest designer, Alessandro Michele, they've really touched a nerve, um, the kind of the zeitgeist um, with the whole gender fluid approach and sort of romantic kind of flower child styles. And those have really taken off. Wow, amazing. I you know, I don't think there's a tougher business in the world than fashion. It is it, it, it to me, I, I I just can't understand how how you could go to bed at night, have your whole inventory look outdated tomorrow morning, and you couldn't have done anything about it. It's like and it's <laughs> it's not worth anything anymore. And it's just absolutely amazing uh, and to master uh, a fashion in, in the way that Gucci has done for a hundred years is astounding to me. And that's really the trick, you know, is to is to create something that feels fresh and new and that immediately makes your old things feel feel old. Um, but it's also really a, a, a way to read our sort of our modern culture, too. And so you can also take fashion and, and look at it as a sign of the times and what's going on in the broader cultural arena. Yeah, they've been able to tap into that every step of the way. It's just amazing this uh, sixth sense that they have for the consumer and their brand. You know, some companies know their consumer and they their brand loses their way. Others, it's vice versa. Here, I think they always had this kind of tango with the consumer and the brand that they each knew how to dance uh, and and how the other partner would react. If you, if, I know it sounds a little weird, but it's like they knew each other's moves and they... 
They never separated, which just amazes me that Gucci is just as fresh today than it was when I remember in the 70s. Well, it's a tricky balance. And I think, you know, people will want to watch and see what they do next, obviously, because uh, Alessandro Michele has been there since 2015. He's incredibly creative. He has really constantly, you know, revived interest in the brand. Um, but there were times when, you know, over its history, Gucci was perceived as being overexposed. So, so the first time was in the 80s when the Gigi logo was on everything from, you know, toilet kits to coffee mugs. And that's when Maurizio came in and really wanted to refocus the attention on the top end of the luxury market. He cleaned out all of the more sort of lucrative, but, you know, down market products and so that was the first time when they really changed their strategy. Um, then again, in um, the years when Frida Janina was the creative director, uh, there was a big emphasis on the icons. So big emphasis on logos, big emphasis on the floor scarf. And yet it didn't really touch a nerve with consumers. And so Gucci was seen as being kind of, kind of, you know, just another set of, of you know, set of shoes and a, and a handbag company. It wasn't really touching people, people's emotions. And I think for a fashion brand to be able to command the kind of, you know, prices that Gucci commands, they have to really touch something in people. Yeah. Now I, I know, I, I can almost guess what the answer is, but I'm going to ask anyway. I know as an author, you fall in love. You it become obsessed, I should say. When you write a book, you become obsessed. And you live it, breathe it. Everyone thinks when the author is writing a book, they're just typing away. No, it really kind of takes over you, right? You would agree with that, right? You you live the oh, life. Oh, that is so, so true. And I had no idea that was going to happen to me. Um, and I'm a pretty disciplined, organized person. And I had written my chapter outline and I was just going to tackle like a chapter a month and, and knock this thing off, you know, and in uh, 12 months. And well, it didn't happen that way at all. Um, I got total writer's block right when I started and, and ended up writing for like a month and, and all of that work, I ended up tearing it apart and putting it into three different chapters. Um, you get lost in the characters. And in this case, there's so many intense characters and they all had very strong views of each other and of the story. And I had to somehow find the truth, um, you know, in the middle of all of that. And so I had to kind of get lost in the characters, get lost in the plot. Um, I had a, a three-year-old when I started writing the book and I dedicated it to her because I wanted her to understand why mommy was so distracted <laughs> all those years. So it ended up taking two years. Um, I would say about 18 months was uh reporting and writing. And then the last six months was, you know, copy editing and passing the manuscript back and forth. Why do you think this movie, I look, there's an all-star cast, right? Everyone, I think there are so many Academy Awards in this movie of, it's, it's like a who's who of Hollywood. Okay. You got Lady Gaga, Al Pacino, a whole bunch of other people, but uh, put that all aside for one second. As good as the acting might be, and as good as the the um, the whole cinematography and the and the setting and everything. Why do you think this story resonates with people? The Gucci family. Like, why did my wife say, "Come on, we're going to the movies"? I said, "I don't want to see the house of Gucci. I'm not into fashion. I wear LL Bean, so I'm the wrong guy." <laughs> what are you even thinking about? Why do you think this really? 
you know, look, I said it did 150, 160 million in Spider-Man. You know, no, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story did $10 million or so, a flop. <laughs> and that's a, that's a pretty good story. But the, the, you, you, the movie just, it's, it's just drawing people like the bread. Well, first of all, this is really an epic story that touches people on so many levels. It's not really a fashion story. It's it's a family business story. And, you know, the fashion adds the glamour glamour to it. But it's really about um, it's about the dysfunction of a family that created something amazing. And then they kind of tore each other apart. And so, I mean, that's gripping. We all want to know about how that works. And we all, you know, everybody, every family has some uh, level of dysfunction. And this is just kind of blew it, you know, out of scale. And I think people are, are intrigued and also thinking about their own families and their own businesses and how to make things work. And, you know, there's a message here, which is also that, you know, you, you can't pick your family. You you have to learn how to, to live with them and deal with them and, and work together. And, and why can't a family that's created something so amazing sort of resolve their differences and, and all pull in the same direction? You know, it took me, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I, and I think these are the issues that, that, that bring people to, to the story. So it's such a human, tra- it's, it's just a tragedy, really. It's like, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, I think it's HBO Succession, uh, which is out now. It's a family business and it's three mm-hmm. seasons with Brian Cox. And it's just, I, I, I watched the first season and I thought I wouldn't be interested, but it kind of grows on you because it's not a story about business anymore. You're right. It's you could start identifying the characters and saying, oh, <laughs> there's Uncle Bob. <laughs> there's so-and-so. So it really draws exactly. you. And, and yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that because the people that I've asked, and remember, this is not a scientific study. The people I've asked, uh, did you ever think about saying, nah, I just saw it because there was really, I just wanted to get out. And when they did see the movie, they came like, how'd you like it? It's pretty good. It's just, uh, you know, what's good about it? I don't know. Overall, it's a good movie. Like it's, it's even, I, I think you would think right off the bat, if you had a cast like that, it should just do absolutely amazingly well. But it could also do terribly if, it, if the storyline wasn't good, if the screenplay wasn't good, if this just didn't have a human element to it. Well, when I was writing it, I mean, I could really visualize it on a big screen and and I set many of the scenes. I could almost like see the camera, you know, panning. Um, there's so much to to like here. I mean, and there could be I think there could be, you know, a dozen movies out of the story because there's so many levels to unpack. You know, there's the origin story. I mean, you know, this movie tells the, the slice of the story about the relationship between Maurizio and Patrizia. And uh, the family dynamics, you know, as they play out through through their love story and then they're falling out of love. Um, but there's an origin story. There's, uh, you know, the family, lo- you know, battles story. There's the takeover battle afterwards with, the you know, the French, you know, luxury titans. So so there's really also something for everybody in this. I mean, there's something for the fashion victim, but there's something for the business business person, too. Yeah. You know, just a great job. Did you have a say when you heard who the well, you're writing this, right? So you wrote this around 2000 or so. So you started writing, let's say, 1998 and you're writing this. Lady Gaga, I think, was, I don't know, maybe in grade school at the time. But as you're writing this, are you picturing in your mind, uh, you said the settings, okay, but do you see actors as you're doing this who would play this part, who would be the perfect person for that part? 
No, I really, I didn't. Um, I wasn't really thinking in those days. I was just trying to get the story down. And a lot was happening when I was writing the book. So I was actually re-reporting an older book that had been based on interviews with Paolo Gucci, who was Maurizio's cousin, uh, who's the one who's played by Jared Leto in the movie. Um, then the takeover battle started. So I was following that um, almost in real time. And then in May, the trial started of Patrizia for um, or organizing. Wait, you know, what was your May was a 2000? This was, this was 1998. Oh, was 98, the, May 98, the trial starts? It starts in May and it goes for five months. And so, and I, they were in court three days a week and I was in court just about every day because I wanted to be up front and close well, and you, get, you, you know. Italy, the, so you were in Italy during this time? Yeah, I was in Italy. I lived in Italy for 22 years. Oh, so you're sitting there, you understand fluent Italian and you're exactly. watching the story at courtside. Exactly. That seems unfair that you write a book on this because it's like this, the, the, the transcript is play, is your movie, is your book. It's just amazing. Well, there was so much information that came out of the court um, transcripts, as you can imagine. And that was actually a really useful um, reporting tool. And a lot of filings, um, you know, psychological reports, letters, Patricia's um, diaries in which she's writing down her thoughts. And every phone call with Maurizio, the tapes, when she decides she's going to like wage a sort of a, a war, you know, smear campaign against him. She's recording angry cassette tapes and mailing them to wait, him. Wait, hang on a second. If we talk about the movie, are we giving any spoiler, spoiler alerts? Are we really screwing that up or... I know how the movie plays out because I know how the history plays out. But if we start talking about that now, uh, people who didn't see it and want to see it are going to be pissed or not? No, I think it's very much okay. out there so we could talk. Uh, what happens. We could so talk. great question. But, okay. you know, we know that the Patrizia, um, after wait, know, wait, just, getting just, ditched. Well, hang on a second. Just give us a little background for someone who knows nothing about this whole intrigue and the murder and everything. Back us up there and, and just is if I knew nothing about this, talk to me about that part. Yeah, so this is, this, you know, as I said, the story of the relationship between Maurizio, who is the only son of Rodolfo Gucci. He's, he's based in Milan. The other family members are either in Florence or in Rome. Uh, he's a very eligible bachelor, uh, very attractive. And Patri he falls in love with Patrizia, who is kind of the proverbial girl from the other side of the tracks. Uh, she was actually born out of wedlock to her mother, Silvana. She ends up being adopted um, by her stepfather, uh, Fernando Reggiani, who owns a successful trucking company outside Milan. But um, she's not considered to be part of the same social circle that Maurizio's from. And what people maybe don't understand is that there's a very sort of clear social strata in this, you know, Milanese uh, business and industrial society. And Rodolfo, Maurizio's father, was terrified that she was just after his money. So and he, she, he saw her as a He's a, a smart digger. old fox. He knows that, <laughs> that this young girl, and she's an attractive young girl, he's a good looking guy. And, it, and I think I, he had a large percentage of the shares, right? It was a... Uh, was it 50% or so? He had 50%. Five zero. Okay. So this lady, she knows what she's going for, right? She has the full package here. And the father's really sharp and saying, look, don't go through this because if you do. And he actually tries to get the, the wedding stopped by the Catholic Church. So he goes 
to meet with the Cardinal of Milan and says, you know, we can't let this wed this marriage happen. And the Cardinal says, you know, I'm sorry to, you know, Mr. Gucci, but if they're in love, there's nothing that, that we can do. You know, the church is not about to get in the way of, of a marriage. So, so the marriage goes forward, the wedding goes forward. None of the Gucci's come. It's only people from Patricia's side of the family. Wait, wait, hang, hang one second. Completely... What does, because you know this so well, what do you think Maurizio sees in this that that no that everyone else could see? Because as you're looking through this book and you're reading it, you know it's a perfect setup. It's a perfect setup, right? So what didn't? What do you think was going through his head? Like she really loves me for me, and I'm not listening to anyone, and this is true love. Well, actually, I do think she did love him, um, and I think you know she was ambitious. She was being pushed by her mother to not only marry a wealthy man, but a man with a big name. But at the same time, I do think she she fell in love with him. Um, but he was really head over heels. He was completely swept off his feet. She was beautiful. She was exciting. She was, um, you know, kind of con not controversial, but she was kind of edgy. Um, and she was different. And and he was also kind of trying to get out from under his father's thumb. And at that point, and you can see, you know, he's, he's not really, he hasn't really come into his own as a man yet. And um, you know how they say, sometimes we marry our parents. Well, it seemed like he married sort of the female version of his father, but didn't realize it until much later in the story where, where he starts to feel constrained by Patricia, even as he had felt constrained by his father, who was very kind of domineering. You also become a therapist so when like, you write these books, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was like history repeated itself. So, so when do you think, like, she starts off okay from, you know, it's, she doesn't seem crazy, you know, or, uh, I, look, I, I, I can't say that. I'm going to ask you, you know this much more intimately. What, what's the turning point where she starts to, like, uh, you know, things become a little fuzzy where she takes the leap and goes to the dark side. Well, I mean, first of all, she's really, as I said, she's very ambitious and the fashion industry is taking off and it's all about Armani and Versace. And Gucci is really seen as kind of an, a has-been company, kind of a dusty old, you know, Florentine leather goods company. And she sees a real opportunity for Gucci to become a leader. And she's pushing Maurizio to kind of step up to the plate and be like the big, you know, Gucci CEO in Milan. And he's not really having it. And he's he's shy. He's introverted. He doesn't like kind of being out on the social set. And, and she loves all that. And so she's pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And it starts to get a little bit too much. And then his father dies, and that's where the switch is, is flipped. Was she, and, was she a smart businesswoman? Well, she definitely had had good sense. Um, for example, she was the one who, who suggested to Rodolfo to buy the penthouse, beautiful penthouse apartment in Olympic Towers. And initially he said, you're crazy. You're just trying to spend my money. And she said, you know, it's a good investment. And, of course, it sure proved to be. I mean, it was ended up being worth millions. So, so she was savvy. I would say she wasn't really educated, but she had a lot of common sense and street smarts, and um, it served her it served her well. Um, so, but it wasn't until Maurizio, you know, loses his father. 
He inherits 50% of the company. He starts to come to his plan to relaunch Gucci because he wants to make his father and his grandfather proud of him. And he wants to restore Gucci to how much, its glory. How much was that 50% worth? Well, when he finally sold it, it was $150 million. So when he inherited it, it was worth what? Um, it was less than that. I don't have the, the figures. Okay, but it was but, pretty substantial, right? There was so so uh, she really, you know, she really helps him or she really controls this and, and builds that brand up, right? She 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 has a like you said, she has a good nose for what Well, I wouldn't say she built it up, but she definitely set things in motion. Yeah, no, I mean she I should say that right. She pushed in the right direction. There was yeah, a woman she behind wanted to the hire, scenes. Like yeah. a of, of proper designer. She was actually designing a gold jewelry collection for a while. It was very kind of um, ostentatious, but it was very much sort of in the spirit of, of the 80s and everything was big and kind of flashy. Um, but he wanted to make it more classic and he wanted to make it like the Italian version of the French brand Hermes, which was very kind of highbrow, you know, at the time. They've all since moved more into the fashion arena. But right. at the time, he wanted to be round and brown and soft to a woman's touch. That was his phrase. Um, so he he focused on on really classic pieces. And and when does but, she, when, you know it, when does she start to turn? When does when does when do the wheels come off the wagon with her? Well, when he leaves, um, and she realizes that she's lost him. And and one day in 1984. 1985, he packs a bag, says he's going to Florence for business meetings, and he never comes back. And he, he doesn't have the courage to tell her that he's done. He sends a friend who's a family doctor the next day um, with a bag and a, and a bottle of Valium to tell her that Maurizio is, is finished. And, then, and that's when it starts. And what's if we talk about it, we're not giving away. Well, it's happened, right? So you sat at the court. So folks, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for him. So, okay. So, so walk us through that. Well, what is that? And, and you had a ringside seat. So you were listening to this in the courtroom and it probably like you said, holy smokes, this is, this is stranger than fiction. It is. And actually, you know, while we can't condone what she did, of course you can, as a writer, you know, I tried to understand how can a woman get to the point of wanting to kill her ex-husband. And the way I would sort of summarize it is that it was almost a series of events that just started to fester and became an obsession with her. And actually the judge really summed it up, I think the most articulately when he issued his sentence, he said, Maurizio didn't die for who he was, but for what he had. Um, and that he had the name and the fame and the fortune that she really had had sort of fancied as as hers, and she she felt that she you know had lost it, and it was only after he died that she became La Signora Gucci again and kind of reclaimed it, and she moved into his apartment. She wore his bathrobe. I mean, it was it was pretty profound. Um, but they, the judge ordered a psychi psychological evaluation, um, also because initially she had uh, presented an insanity defense, and she had had a brain tumor that was operated on, um, and it was a successful operation. The tumor was removed. It was not benign. It was not cancerous. It was benign. Um, 
But for example, Maritsu didn't show up to the hospital when uh, when she was going to surgery. So she felt like even though they weren't married anymore, she was still the mother of his daughters and he hadn't shown up. So she, there was just a lot of hurt, like layers of layers of hurt. Um, and they found that she had a narcissistic personality disorder. So the way they described it, they said, well, when everything was going well, she was fine. But when things started to go downhill, they had like an outsized effect on her. And um, she, she took all of these things as things that had been done against her personally. I, I know so many people with that disorder. <laughs> you go through life, you meet a lot of those kinds of people. So, so uh, did you ever meet her? I did. I did. I met her actually in 1993 before any of these um, events happened. And it was at the time that she was um, waging the smear campaign and she was um, giving interviews to journalists in Milan about how terrible she thought Maurizio was. She, he, at that point, he was struggling to hold on to the company. He hadn't lost control yet, but he was clearly fighting uh, with Inviscor, his partner. He had overspent, so the company was taking on a lot of debt. People were leaving, and it was a very tense situation. And she was furious with him. And so she was granting interviews, um, you know, just basically pointing out how what a terrible businessman he was and how he had hurt her and had wronged her. So um, my editors at the end, in the end decided not to publish the interview, but I had a long, a long in interview with her in her penthouse apartment in San Babila overlooking like the main shopping district in Milan. Why didn't why did they want you to publish it? Well, at the time I was working hmm. for Women's Wear Daily and W Magazine, and it was all about, you know, sort of the beautiful life and beautiful people and intriguing things. And, and it was, it was really um, a kind of a hit job uh -huh. and that wasn't, wasn't really in line, you know, wasn't really in the editorial line of the, of the magazine. But looking back, you would have, you would have, you would have published that, right? It, well, today, you know, today, something like that, uh, would it be a hit piece? I don't know if it would be a hit piece per se. She was really, um, well, who knows, man? It's 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 such a fine. Every anything goes today that uh, that uh, that people want to put out against and hurt other people. I guess that I guess it would go. I guess I'm just. Well, and then when I when she when I started writing the book, she was in jail, and the prison authorities wouldn't allow me to interview her. They were very concerned that she could use her name and her fame and her money to influence, um, you know, the outcome of the trial. So I started, I wrote her a letter and I had, first I tried, I asked the prison authorities in Milan. I went to the justice department in Rome. I even asked uh, one of the lawmakers if they could help me get an interview. And I just kept, the door kept shutting in my face. So I finally wrote her a letter and told her who I was and what I was doing. And I asked if she would write to me and she agreed. And so we, I had a jailhouse correspondence with her in which she talked about primarily about her early years with Maurizio. And she said how he was the man who she still loved the most, despite all of his mistakes. Despite killing him also, right? <laughs> it's, it's, and at that time she was, she was um, maintaining innocence. She maintained that she did not hire the hitman or want, you know, even though she had gone around Milan uh, publicly at dinner parties and talking to friends saying, would somebody please kill my husband? So she was very vocal. <laughs> about this. Um, but she said she didn't really mean it. Even though her lawyer got so upset about it that he wrote her like a cease and desist letter and told her that she had to stop 
stop saying that it was not okay. Um, but she, she, she maintained that she had been saying, well, somebody, you know, not kill my husband, but that it was actually her friend Pina who took it upon herself to do it and then blackmail her for the money. So that was, that wow. was her defense. An elaborate story, right? That's uh yes. Yeah. And she got what yeah. it was 24 years. I think it was. The initial sentence was 29 years. And then it was um, reduced almost immediately to 26 years. And then she ended up spending about 18 um, total. Why, why 18? Good behavior or something? Time off for good behavior. I mean, they always end up spending less time in jail than, than the sentence. Wow, um, and this was a really concern to the detective who had invested on in the investigation. He, he believed that she should have gotten a life sentence that was on par with what the killer got. Um, but the judge said that he he gave her a lesser sentence because of the psychological evaluation. He felt that was a, a mitigating factor. And so where does the movie end? So what, what part of the, the story? movie, because that's I, a spoiler though, okay, isn't so, it? No, then, then stop, <laughs> then don't do it, don't do it. Okay, your book, let's go to your book. Your book ends after that, right? Um, I think you go further, right? You go to, I think, 2008 or 2000. You go up, up Yeah, my book, day. actually, with the, the new tie-in edition, it goes right up to the present. Right. So I, I did a new afterword that updates the highlights of the past 20 years. And, you know, my book looks at not only how Gucci came to be and what it was under the Gucci's, but also how it went on to continued success under professional management. And so you have uh, the Tom Dom team, which they were, they were the darlings of the fashion industry, um, you know, in the late, late nineties, early two thousands, they, they staged the most successful luxury IPO anybody could have imagined. They created the luxury goods sector, financial sector on the stock market mm -hmm. didn't exist before then. They, they had to go out and train analysts and how the luxury market worked. Um, and then, and then of course the takeover battle. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, I was aiming at books like, like Barbarians at the Gate and Den of Thieves. I was sort of really um, interested in the whole sort of the business drama. Um, and to me, the family saga, of course, made it more compelling. I really like tried to weave them together. Um, but that's kind of the genre that I was was trying to achieve in writing this book. So this book's been out for 20 years, right? 20 some odd years. And uh, does it still like freak you out that people are still reading it and and, and talking about it? I, I'm having an interview with you now. And oh, my God. It's, it's I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, writing is a very solitary experience. And this, as you said, before, you know, as you understood, it's a, it was a real labor of love. Um, I really lost myself in the story and the book did well. And when it first came out, it was sold 50,000 copies. Um, it was not on the New York times bestseller list. So to me, this is now a dream come true. Um, but it didn't really touch a nerve back then. And I'm not sure why. Um, and a lot of people say like, how come we didn't know about the Gucci story? You know, this is an incredible story. How come we didn't know about it? So for some reason, you know, you know, they say every book has its time, right? Maybe, maybe this was really the time for this book. Um, yeah, during a pandemic, right? It comes out during the, it just, it's, it's weird. It really is weird because when I got this book, when your publisher sent it, I did not go on Amazon. Uh, so not because I didn't want to go on Amazon, but, uh, you were so gracious last minute 
uh, we reached out to you. We had a spot. You came, and I didn't have a chance to read the whole book, so uh, your publisher sent it to me, and I'm briefing through, and I saw 2020. This, then I went to the beginning. I said, wow, this book was written 22 years ago, and it's still fresh, and pe- that is really a, a, a monumental feat. You know, it, it, wow. uh, that's amazing. You know, it really is. It, it's, I'm sure you're proud of that. That's That's wild. Thank you. Most books, no, it's most, very exciting. Yeah, most and my mom were, is proud too. <laughs> uh, how's your daughter treating you? My so my mom was my editor. She she um she was a reporter in her early years. And uh when she retired, she was an editor at the Department of Commerce and a very good editor. And I was over there in Italy and she was here in the DC area and she we were passing chapters back and forth. Wow. Um so I actually got to go see the first screening of the movie before it was um debuted in movie theaters with her so that was really oh, a great moment when you see yeah. it as an author do you get up do you start picking it apart saying oh, God, this is out of sequence uh, i can't believe the director did here or do you just like take it in and say wow sorry in in terms of seeing the movie when you see the movie right here is your labor of love you put in a whole bunch more into this into this project than the movie shows in two hours or so because it's really only showing a slice and artistic uh, um, reasons they switch things and timelines are a little different and it's not exact. I have one of my sons, any movie he sees, he goes on this site. I don't know what it is on the, on the net, uh, on the web that he shows all the mistakes. Like, you know, he always, but were you watching this go, ah, that's wrong. There were two cousins, not three. There was, uh, the Valley was here. Or do you just take it in and say, wow, this is good stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like I have a lot of respect for the craft of filmmaking and it's not my craft. And so I don't feel like it's something to be picked apart. But I guess to me, what's important is that the the, the thrust of the story is so true to, to the story that I wrote. And if they have devices to better convey that on a big screen, um, I'm not picking over details. Well, so you um, must have been a pleasure to work with because most uh, yeah. <laughs> most most authors are not that way. You know, it becomes a war with the uh, with the screenwriters. Yeah, I mean, I'm so honored that a director of the caliber of Ridley Scott and a cast with of this you know um, caliber is is interpreting the story that I you know spent two years writing. So I'm not um, I'm not a nitpicker. No. Wow, good for you. Well, you sound like a good person. So, uh, you know, this is really, really amazing. I, you know, I just, I just love this story for your story sitting. I know what that is to sit down and write and, you know, uh, you're writing to nobody, (laughs) you're writing to a computer screen. You never know if these words are going to ever see the light of day or some editor is going to strike through it. And you spend every waking hour doing it. And then 20 plus years later, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's a bit of an out of body experience. And and in fact, when I first saw it, it's, you know, you said everything was just kind of crashing, crashing through me, you know, and um, I think that I do think that you can appreciate the movie more if you've read the book, because there are so many quick transitions and, you know, twists and turns. Um, and there's some great details like 
like one of my favorite scenes in the book and also in the movie is the motorcycle escape when Maurizio gets tipped off by his driver that the financial police are coming for him because, again, his uncle and his cousin have have um, reported to the authorities that he forged his, his father's signature on his share certificates, you know, for the famous 50 percent of the company. And Luigi's like, no, you know, Maurizio, the financial police are coming. Go down to the basement, get the motorcycle ride like a bat out of hell to get to Switzerland, where he happens to have a chalet in St. Moritz that his father also left him. Um, but what people don't realize is that Switzerland has a non-extradition treaty with Italy. So once he was there, he was safe. And he actually lived in exile for a year and ran the company from this you know, house in, in St. Moritz um, until he was able to clear the charges against him. Wow, crazy, really crazy stuff. But uh, really, Sarah, all the power to you, continued success. Uh, when I was told that you're going to be on the show, I said, uh, you know, I, I could just imagine that it's like a dream come true. To, because it's not just a movie. You have, like, the best of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, there are so many fine actors. And I think there was a, um, a, a I saw something on a Twitter or somewhere where, um, all right, just give them, give Ridley Scott the Academy Award now. You know, that was like, <laughs> he's the only guy without one, you know, in the movie. Uh, I, I saw some really funny things about Well, I hope her. he gets it. <laughs> well, you, you'd probably, well, if, you know, hope this pandemic thing is all over and all these things, uh, and they could have it live, uh, you would probably be there, right? Well, actually, I did go to the premieres um, in November in London and New York and L.A., and that was incredibly exciting. Um, I got to meet some of the stars, and uh, it was it was just, that was really like a goosebump moment. So that was well, were, they, were they impressed with you? Forget about you being awed with them. Were they impressed with you? Well, I had some great conversations, let's say. Um, I, they loved the story, and it was fun for me to talk to them also about how they interpreted their characters. Um, so that was like, wow, it's great to have such an interesting topic of conversation with these amazing actors. So without giving names, last question for you. Um, uh, all in all, were you happy with the way they interpreted the, the way you, the way you interpreted these, these characters? Are you happy with the way they took your interpretation and portrayed them on screen? Yeah, I think overall, yes. I mean, I think they they got to the essence of of each of the characters, um, and you know, they and they there there were moments where I can I could remember typing some of the same words into my computer. So, for example, I was telling you about the the cassettes that Patrizia was was mailing to Maurizio. There's a scene where Maurizio with his new girlfriend, Paola, are coming back to their new apartment after playing tennis. And he hits the, like, the voice message on the phone. And she, you hear Patrizia's voice and she's saying, you know, Maurizio, the inferno for you is yet to come. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I remember typing those words. But to see them come alive on screen. And, yes. And that's, that's, that's amazing. Well, let's go show you what kind of great job you did that... Uh, the actors are able to uh, really portray the characters the way you envision them. So great well, job. You. you have another book coming out. Do you have any ideas for another one? Um, well, of course now I'm very, you know, jazzed to write another book, but I think that it's really about finding uh, a story that speaks to me and that will speak to people. I mean, the, the point of, I think writing a book is, is really to have a story that resonates with people. So I'm, 
I'm doing research uh, ah, for the next. Great. Absolutely great. Sarah, all the power to you. Lots of continued success. You sound like you're, you're still, you know, you're still awestruck and that's a great place to be, right? Oh, thank you so much. Oh. Great, great questions. Great. What a great interview. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much and, and all the all continued success to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.